0: Another week has gone by, and we are here today. I am Emily Jane Fox with my co host Joe Hagan for another episode of Inside the Hive. Joe, we have big news this week
1: Kamala Harris. That's how her name is pronounced. Say it, feel it. This is it. It's happening. We're in it. Biden the- Harris 2020 is the banner headline of the week.
0: It's like, I feel like it's the headline of the summer not just the headline of the week. We've been waiting on this announcement for what feels like an eternity. And it feels like the first time in this entire cycle where we have real campaign news. It's not just two guys right. locked mm-hmm. away in their towers. We have actual news and it's historic news. I, I have to say, I felt something this week and that feels rare in these days and we're all sort of numb to the state of the world. But Absolutely. I kept thinking, and you must feel this way as the father of girls, but I think the father and mother of everybody who has who has children who are watching this moment mm-hmm. must feel something in some way. But this is a, a moment where I felt proud to be witnessing progress. And yes, that progress is late and delayed. And it's crazy that this would even be progress, but it is. And it's exciting to watch a moment in history, whether or not you agree with the the pick. And there are definitely people who don't. Uh, you and I were just talking offline about our frustrations within the Democratic Party. But it just, it just feels like a moment. And I'm happy that we got to talk about it together and, and collectively as a nation. It feels like progress.
1: Absolutely. And it felt... Um Really amazing to see them in this sort of limited event space that they were Mm. able to present themselves. And they did a really, I think, successful job given the context. But then just to hear her have the platform after Joe Biden set her up talking and to get us, you know, some uh, tastes of what she's great at, Mm. which is, you know, she's saying that the case against Trump is open and shut that every time this guy had an opportunity he or took something over he drove it into the ground. You know, her attack notes were tasteful and perfect and it made me excited to hear her get out the hammer and tongs for these guys when the time comes.
0: You know, was it really what struck me from her speech on Wednesday was that she said as much about it being a historic moment and she said that Joe Biden chose her and Joe Biden is the only candidate to have served as vice president under a black president and has now chosen a black woman president as, as his running mate. And I i mean, I obviously knew those two facts and I knew them together. And I knew them separately. But to hear them articulated that way, I found very, very powerful. And I found it powerful mm-hmm because it is such a clear message that they're trying to send, right? The speech that she gave in the middle of the week was very much about her being a black woman. And it made me feel proud that that's the message that the Democratic Party is leaning into, particularly when you think about who they're running against and the messages they've sent out about race and about women and about diversity and inclusion, that the Democrats have messaged and tested and pulled their little hearts out, and they found that that message of inclusion and progress is what they want to lean into. That's just that's worth noting. That's worth thinking oh, well, about as we head whole, into the to the to the exactly, election. Exactly.
1: That's it's the crossroads we're at. Yes. Right. I mean, what vision of the country do you want? And the vision is, you know, encapsulated in this selection of Kam- of Kamala Harris. And I just want to say that. I, you know, I called my mom right after to, to see what she thought. Mm. Okay, she she voted for Trump. She now regrets it. Mm. And there's Trump out there saying, trying to say, oh, this is going to scare the hell out of suburban women, mm. right? This is the message they want to put out Your there. Your mom's a suburban a, mom. She's a suburban mom. She's in the South. She's a suburban mom. She's sort of in that, you know, kind of weird zone uh, of, uh, you know, voters that biden can pick off mm. uh from disaffected you know trump voters and she's definitely become disaffected why and she was,
0: what's what's changed for her
1: she was one of these people that thought he was going to be a quote-unquote good businessman mm. uh, which obviously fell apart rather swiftly but um and was kind of a joke to begin with as far as i was concerned but you know but i said well you know Are you does Kamala Harris scare you off? She's like, no, no, she liked it, you know, and she Mm. she was excited about it. And and that made me think I always, you know, as one does, if you have, you know, older conservative parents, you use them as a litmus test Mm. or a kind of bellwether or, you know, you're trying to figure out uh, where we're going. She's, you know, I don't want to call my mom a windsock. But she's basically, you know, we're, we're seeing which way the wind is blowing here. And she uh, gave me some hope that Kamala Harris, far from being some kind of like radical maniac or angry woman as uh, Trump has tried to paint her, I don't think that's going to work. I don't think people can see what's right in front of their eyes. And, my, you know, the fact that my mom did made me feel like uh, there's a lot of hope there for other people seeing it and feeling it.
0: I mean, the the kind of voter that Trump is trying to win over this suburban woman is going to take one look at Kamala Harris and hear president trump trying to paint her as this crazy unhinged liberal and they're going to say like you're you've you've officially lost it that is right. that is the last way you could characterize her you can say a lot of things about her and i'm sure a lot of things will be said but her being this sort of unhinged crazy woman She's a mamala, as she said, I love that. I love that. Gotta love that. It's really so clever. Uh, I'm I'm excited to see what's going to happen next week. We have back-to-back conventions. There will be conventions like no other. And I'm glad that we get to talk about that so much this week. I have three guests in an interview. And... What a circus that was. It was particularly particularly circus-like because we have the co-hosts of the Showtime show The Circus which premieres a new season on Sunday. It's crazy to me. I have been on the, sh- the the Circus a few times and the way that they produce that show, I don't think people give it give it enough credit for for how they get it done. They start a new episode on Monday they travel like crazy throughout the week. They finish on Saturday. They edit overnight on Saturday. And a new show comes on the air on Sunday evenings, 8 p.m. Eastern time. And it's really a marvel. They do such incredible job. But, you know, we're entering this season and this campaign season in a completely different way, travel is different. The The show is based so much around the restaurants they try and the people they're able to interview in person and the events they're able to go to. And restaurants don't exist. Events aren't happening. In-person meetings are distanced and masked and outside. And so we got to talk all about what this season will look like, uh, about the conventions, about what they feel might never go back to normal. And if that's okay, we talked all about what a Biden administration would look like and if he's progressive enough and how he will handle the progressive wings of the Democratic Party. It was a fascinating interview. I'm really excited for you to hear. We recorded it last week because they were going on the road this week. They're already in the middle of their circus. And so we talked Just about um, the conventions had just been canceled and Kamala had not been named vice president. But we get into all of the good juicy stuff. Should we get into it, Joe?
1: Let's do it. I got my popcorn ready. Let's roll.
0: What an absolute delight we have today. We have the three greatest ringmasters from the greatest show on earth together in one digital place as Showtime's The Circus ramps up for the premiere of its fifth season, which It's a crazy number to say. We've got John Heilman, Alex Wagner, and Mark McKinnon, the three fearless hosts of the show, here with us today. You guys are back just in time for the crazy, huh? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I guess the crazy has never really stopped, but this feels like a particularly wild moment. So welcome and thank you for coming on by. Where are all you guys?
2: Well, this is McKinnon. I am in uh, Blue River, Colorado, elevation 10,000 feet and population 800. This is where people came originally to social distance. They've been doing that forever. That's why they came here. So it's a pretty good place to be.
3: (laughs) Um, I'm uh, on the North Fork of Long Island in toddler quarantine hell. Mm -hmm. And I'm so excited to get back out (laughs) on the road. That is a real reason for the season, huh? So she can get some sleep.
0: Don, where are you,
4: Emily? I am, uh, back in your old stomping grounds of, uh, lower Manhattan. Although, although, although given how high I generally am, I'm at a higher elevation than MCAT. Um, just, you know, just in my, in, <laughs> in, in my own, in, in my own, in my own mind, I'm like at 11,000 feet, but, um, it's a little weird here. We miss you in the neighborhood, but, um, I have been out of the city for pretty much all of March through like literally last, we came back last Friday. So, um, I'm I'm back here now and coping with the reality of I don't want to say post pandemic New York, but because New York is really the kind of like the only place in the country that's not like on fire with COVID, it feels weird here to be both like I'm given the hell that the city went through in March and April and into May. It's it's weirdly normal here compared to what I gather is the case in you know where you are. Um for one thing, out in LA and in a totally. lot of the southwest.
0: Yeah, it is it is so far from well, I think it's always far from normal in Los Angeles. That's my, my take on the city. But it feels particularly far from whatever normal Los Angeles usually settles into. And the, the weird thing about what you're about to embark on is that you're going to see how this has hit so many different places in the country. I think t- – tell me, MCAT – I mean, I don't think that people, unless they're in it, totally understand how your show works to produce every week. And I am lucky <laughs> enough to have gotten to see it a couple of times up close. But walk us through what what a week in your production schedule usually looks like and then how the fuck you guys are preparing to shift that schedule or do any sort of semblance of what we know and love from the circus in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of an election year, in the middle yeah. of a social well, uprising. <laughs>
2: Emily, it's it's always uh, wild and it's, uh, it's an enterprise that initially television executives literally did not think we could do. They didn't technically think we could pull it off because we produce a documentary every week. This usually takes months, if not, you know, a year or more to do what we do. But we've always felt that the really compelling part of this show is that we're in the cockpit of a plane as it's taking off and landing on these campaigns and And in Washington, and and people are so thirsty for news right now, and to get it in a different perspective, and they want it right away. They don't want to like reflect on something that happened six months ago. So I can't even think of an example, Emily, where we put on the air something on Sunday that was shot before the Monday before, and often we're putting stuff on the air that we shot late Saturday night. So imagine you're a television executive at, at Showtime and you see the, you don't see the finished show that we put on the air until Sunday late morning usually. <laughs> and at that point, you can't do much it's about wild. it. wild, yeah. Yeah, and so this is a whole new chapter for all of us as it is for everybody because number one, in a lot of circumstances, the campaigns don't know what they're gonna be doing, right? I mean, sure. we just heard this morning that now the Democrats have decided that they're actually not gonna be in Milwaukee. And that Biden's going to be doing his speech from somewhere else. So so we're not even clear what the campaigns are doing. They're not even clear. But whatever it is that they're going to do, we're going to be there wherever there is. And we'll be covering it in our usual circus way, which is to say differently from a different vantage point, fast, furious, and documentary style.
0: Alex, walk me through some of the prep that you have to go through that you guys are all working through. The way the show usually works is because you're taking people into the room where things happen, that means you have to be on a plane sometimes several times a week. You have to be going from different offices. You're in different rooms with many different people. I haven't been in a room with anyone except for my fiance in six months, and you guys are are working with the prospect of being in different cities, different states, different Senate offices. How do you prepare for that? What's going to change? What anxieties do you have about that? I would just, I don't know how I would wrap my mind around it.
3: Again, I will tell you, nothing's worse than being in quarantine for five months with two toddlers. So given that (laughs) I'm I'm fucking ready, Emily. Um, you know, look, we are, we are going to be really safe. You are going to see polar fleeces like you've never seen before because we're going to be outside a lot Mm. through the fall and winter. Um, I think some parts of the production are going to necessarily have to, you know, meet with the reality of COVID. So it's going to change, but our intention is to still give you a, uh a sense of visceral understanding of what this moment in American politics is like, and we're going to do it responsibly. You know, I think all of us understand that. You know, we're journalists. We're well, McKinnon's a, a political soothsayer, and a strategic fake, guru. Fake <laughs> he's a he's the, he's probably the one with the most sterling journalistic credentials, to be honest. Um, it, but but I think. You know, we also understand that people look to, you know, we're not going to do anything irresponsible because we know we're on, you know, lots and lots of people watch the show every week and we don't want to be cavalier about anything, including our own health. But also, you know, we're all in this together um, and everybody's got to play it safe if we're ever going to get through this thing. So, I mean, we're not denying the reality of COVID, but we are, as always, reaching our long tentacles into both campaigns and trying to get the best, most relevant um, information for our audience, and people have been, I think, generally really open to doing stuff with us. Again, I don't think it's going to necessarily look the same it has in, in previous seasons, but you're still going to get a sense of the chaos and the confusion and the exhilaration of the most consequential American presidential election in modern history.
0: Mm, I want to talk about the, the the consequential election that we're facing, and, and you guys getting your tentacles into these campaigns, and that's what really is the lifeblood of the show to me and why I have watched this show for for five seasons. Everyone I know has watched the show for as long as it's been on. This is such an important and interesting election because you don't have any of the usual moments that people have to get to know people. You don't have the convention the way that we've ever had the convention. You don't have rallies or fundraisers and all the different ways that we've typically been introduced to the issues, the people, the campaigns. But at the same time, it's to me, it's the clearest choice of an election that we've ever had. You have our current president who has created the world that we live in for the last four years, and then you have a completely known quantity on the other side, right? It's not like you have an unknown that people aren't familiar with running against a president who has created a shitstorm in in the way that we all are living every day. So, Heilman, how do you make sense of, I guess, how Americans will make sense of this election in this very strange time but with a very clear choice at the top?
4: I did want to like comment a little bit about one thing from what Alex said, which is that she said the, the, you could, nothing would be worse than being stuck in quarantine with two toddlers. And I sort of feel like Alex, that's what you've been on in every season of the show so far. You've been stuck in quarantine (laughs) with with me and MCAT. Like it's the
0: only difference, right? There's less poop with you guys.
4: Uh, Not that that much less. Um. I
3: just said less. I didn't say none. I just said less.
4: All right. You know. Um, well, boy, that's a big question, EJF. Um, I think that, you know, it is true for sure that, you know, the thing that's happened in the course of, of my career and MCAT's career, uh, cause we're a little, a little longer in the tooth than Alex, you know, the, the dominating factor, which has been the polarization, the political polarization of the country, which has, uh, had one giant effect on elections right which is that the concept of like swing voters is been reduced to a very very small minimum you know over the we used to talk about you know the a 10 15% swing and a bunch of upper grabs voters and now you know there's the the country's so polarized and so red and blue and so you know shirts and skins that like you really the, the way that the, these races are run now is really different than it was when we started doing it 30 years ago. In MCAT's case, a little bit longer than that. And so a lot of people made up their mind. They made up their mind a long time ago. They're like they're not really that many available votes out there. It's not to say there are none, and obviously that's part of what this the election's about. But you know, that the you know, in the high 40s of of, of the electorate are, are never going to vote for Donald Trump. And the only question for Joe Biden is how many of them he can get to to vote. And there's all these incredibly high challenges and, and and hurdles to get over in this context, in the context of COVID, in the context of, of having to rely more on mail-in voting uh, and, and a system that the president's currently trying to both undermine actually, like, you know, by undermining the postal service and then rhetorically by casting doubt on it. But it's a different way, you know, everything about the the polarization of the country and the the set in stoneness of our politics has just been amplified by everything that's happened over the last Six months, right? So the anti-Trump intensity is is greater, and we see that in a variety of places, including fundraising, where shockingly Joe Biden, who's never been a good fundraiser, is now outraising the president an incumbent president, who thought he had a huge financial advantage in that way, and that's just because the intensity of feeling on the anti-Trump side is much greater than it's always been great through for three and a half years, but after COVID, a, de- a, re- a depression level recession, and these massive uh, race racial equity. Racial justice protests, the president has the ferocity is greater than ever. And I'd say on the MAGA side, it's also incredibly intense um, and has been throughout. But that that's a, a smaller group of people, but the fierceness of the, of their commitment to the president is super high. And so it's a weird thing. I'm not sure if I'm answering your question the right way, but in a in a in a in a in a world where where persuasion is less part of the election than motivation and turnout, and how do you get the people who are already convinced that they're in your camp, how do you get them to to vote where that was going to be the election even before COVID? It's more the election now because very few people don't have their mind made up, but the challenges that the campaigns have now, put, put aside the rallies and stuff and the conventions, the thing that these campaigns would be doing right now, which is identifying the voters that are in their coalition, registering those voters, and then eventually getting them to vote, whether that's Early in absentee or on election day is just infinitesimally harder, stratospherically colossally harder than it's ever been before. So there are a lot of ways in which this election is going to be different than any other election we've ever seen before. But I just I look at that and think about, you know, the the, the basic framework for the election is making more important the thing that is the hardest to do. And how the campaigns and the and the parties try to crack the code on that over the next three months. In the face of foreign election interference, a president who's tried to invalidate the, the election's validity uh, and integrity. All of that is going to be an amazing spectacle to watch, and I don't really have any precedent for it. Like We've never seen anything like it before, really ever, ever seen anything like it before, which is, what is why it's going to be so fascinating to cover it.
0: Totally. I, I Everything that you're saying makes complete sense to me, and it's the way I've been feeling about this election and, and looking at the election that what's at stake here is so grave and everyone feels that in a very personal way now. It's not just a political decision. It's a very personal decision. And the thought of of campaigning in this, particularly when you have two old men essentially in in bunkers of their own making, trying to move a needle that feels kind of immovable, feels an impossible feat. MGAT, One of the things I also keep thinking about, and and I'm so curious to see on your show as you guys cover it, the way you cover everything, because you're so deep into things. I keep worrying about what we're missing, because in 2016, a large portion of the political press missed what was happening in America, and you guys are able to go places and see things that other people uh, who are stuck in newsrooms on the East Coast missed. So what I'm curious from you is what do we do to stop that from happening in this election? And what do you think is sort of barely beneath the surface in 2020 that will will be important this year, but you think that other people could, could maybe miss? Great on?
2: question. And let me just sort of – it's an extension, an amplification of what John just said, and that is that this, you know, is arguably easily uh, that it's the most important election of our lifetime – and while it's the most important, and maybe be the most difficult to vote. So mm. the most important and the hardest at the same time. I, I mean, I heard some some news reports this morning about uh, you know just how many people. This, this I think was particular to the African American community. They're suspicious about voting by mail, and so they want to vote in person. But they're having a great deal of difficulty getting people to show up to man the the, the voting booths, right? Because people are afraid of COVID. So you have people who want to come out and vote, but people don't want to be there to help them vote. So I think that's something that we're going to really want to keep our eye on because I think that there's a, a building consensus among a lot of people that we may not know the results. They may not be clear election night. In fact, we had originally thought about starting our fall run two weeks before the convention. Now we're talking about taking those two weeks and putting them after the election just in case there's some aftermath beyond election day uh, that we need to cover. And I think that's increasingly likely. So to your question, I think, what are we going to be looking at? We'll be looking at, I think, precisely that. Are people going to be able to vote? How are they going to vote? How are the legal fights going to happen? So we can anticipate a little bit what could be happening so we're not caught flat-footed like we were, say, in 2000.
0: Totally. I I think that so much of this is is you're reading the tea leaves, but – All of this is unprecedented. All this is stuff that we haven't seen before. And I think you're totally right about what could happen after the election. If things aren't counted in, you know, Florida has been traditionally so good at counting mail-in votes so quickly. And we saw our president point to Florida yesterday in a a very weird turn of things.
4: This is Inside the Hive.
0: Hi, it's Radhika Jones, editor-in-chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. Voting, counting mail-in votes in Florida on a year when people can go to the polls is very different than counting mail-in votes in every state in states that are not set up the way that Florida is set up. So I'm wondering, Alex, this is a year where I think all sorts of traditional, conventional things are out the window. We're seeing that with what could happen in mail-in voting. We're seeing that with election timelines. We're seeing that with the conventions. Do you think it matters to the electorate that that the sort of guideposts are, that we've come to rely on as traditional ways to understand elections won't be there. In just a traditional sense, this is a country that I think is, is fairly traditional still. Does it matter for the election that people won't have these traditional things to guide them through it? And I I also wonder, will we ever have a convention the same way again after <sighs> this year? If we if we see that we can get through the election without these things, do they ever come back?
3: Yeah, I think that's a co- like a really... Very open question. I was talking with the great political strategist David Axelrod yesterday, and he was saying, I don't know that it's a bad thing that these conventions are going to be happening virtually. I mean, you know, the delegates get to go and they get to wave their signs, but really, like, Maybe a made for TV primetime special, A, is going to serve Biden quite well since they've had so long to plan it, but B, Mm. becomes the new norm. Like, do you actually really need to gather in some city in the sweltering heat and pack yourselves into a convention hall? Or is a more effective message, you know, channeled digitally and on the airwaves? Forget about the in person thing. I mean, I think that there's. Look, there's some institutions like uh, you know, the, 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 the sanctity of a free and fair election, but those institutions should remain, right? Like we all want to see people be able to vote and be able to vote and get their ballot counted. That kind of institutional atrophy or failure is not something I think people want. But then there are other traditions that we've just accepted all these years because that's the way they've been. And I think if there's anything about this moment, people are challenging the way the, the rules have been written. And you mm-hmm. see that in the protests that are on the street. You see you see that very much inside the Democratic Party. I mean, there's a, a Missouri primary that we just got election results for. And the progressive upstart has defeated the sort of generational incumbent. And that's happening in these races all over the country. There is a huge appetite for change right now. And what's really interesting, I think, is that, yes, we are, um, you know, looking at two old white guys. But I think very much so in Biden's party, because of the sort of cross currents and democratic politics, you know, Joe Biden may be an old guy, but he's going to be the titular head of a party that is really restive. And Really desirous of change and movement and rethinking the old order, and you could see a fantastical, you know, shift in where the party sets its goalposts under this sort of very old, very established, very you know traditional figurehead of Joseph Robinet Biden the third. John, is that right? Junior. Um, Junior. Junior sorry, the second. That feels like um, a name
0: that's ripe for change, huh?
3: <laughs> <laughs> or not, or maybe it's incredible. Uh, you know, I don't know. I just think it's, I think in many ways, the chaos of the last four years have made people uh, really despondent in a lot of ways, especially on the democratic side of the eye, But I also think that we're looking at just a seismic shift in the way we do business politically. And that is really exciting, not just as a citizen, but as a journalist to be able to, mm. to chronicle all that.
2: Hey, How Emily, can I just jump in, in on in that, that question please. of the convention? Um, one of the very few upsides of COVID may be that we finally put these conventions out of their misery, out of our misery. Uh, You know, I was heavily involved in planning the 2000 and 2004 conventions and 20 years ago, we had a lot of conversations about how anachronistic it is. It's like, do we really need to be doing this? Some rolling five-day expensive party with a bunch of bad speeches and really horrible entertainment. I mean, for the things that the conventions really have to do and need to do, I'd say 90% of it is extraneous. So I think, you know, I think the conventions are going to change this year, and I'm pretty certain for the good and for a long time.
0: Well, what I want to know, I'm curious because I think about this all the time now, what else do we want to go extinct after this period of time? I think the conventions are very tippy top of that list, but there are so many things like, I don't know, will, will I ever work in an office the same way that I worked in an office? Probably not. And that's okay by me. I'm, I'm fine with that, but I'm wondering what offices. else you guys
3: are happy offices. with going out. I do think I do think the way we vote is going to change. I think this is already such a clusterfuck, and could be catastrophic. That I, I think God there willing. is going to be a wholesale, you know, um, you know, there's going to be a real gut check about w- the way in which we, well, we cast our ballots in this
0: country. Sure, I, I talk about that every week. Heilman, what do you what do you want to go? Hmm. I think yeah, I, you know I I continue
4: to think that. Uh, it's not going to happen anytime soon but I imagine that I think voting for sure the vote the electoral system is a mess in a variety of ways and um, and I think that will be in up for some serious discussion. I definitely agree with MCAT I think the notion of you know the balloon drop and the much the I, I mean I love the balloon drop I do I love the balloon drop at the conventions my only part of the convention that I like I like all those balloons almost as much as I like the name Robinette. Um, Because you know, in the this thing I'm, I most miss about the Obama era, in fact, is the notion that we had the two guys Hello? running. The country. Now the two guys running the country had had the middle names Hussein and Robinette, and you know what a, what a country. Um, That's a moment. But I think you know the thing. I think the electoral college continues to be you know uh, it, it's a, obviously there's people looked up after 2016 and noticed the fact that people who who won the popular vote. Uh, we've had a, a shocking number of, of situations in which people who have won the popular vote have not been the president of the United States after winning the popular vote. And I think there was some movement to reform that system previously. I am I, I, There's no doubt that I don't think anybody in their right mind thinks that Joe Biden's not going to win the popular vote against Donald Trump and potentially win it by a larger margin than Hillary Clinton did. And and yet, we're going to have a close election. I mean, we are going to have a close election. I I, I think you know there's some possibility that Joe Biden you know wins every every battleground state by double digits and gets 400 electoral votes i think that's very slight, unlikely and the reason why there's going to be so much of this post election mischief in addition to trump's you know just temperament behavior and all the things he's willing to do and having no limits and having no bounds and having no shame is that it's going to be likely that even though Joe Biden wins the popular vote by 4 or 5 million that there's going to be enough battleground states where the margin is small, and Trump is talking about this now. You know the reason why these questions about how the ballots get counted, what happens in overtime, Trump, you know, trying to say that you know if everybody has a has a mail-in ballot, that uh, you know the, the question of how they're going to get counted and are their ballots going to get certified and all that stuff. The reason why the superstructural reason why we care is that even though Joe Biden has won by five million popular votes, that Donald Trump could still somehow string together a bare minimum of 270 electoral votes if all of the closed states tumble his way. And I do think there's there's just a level, it's a, it's an anti-democratic, antiquated system that I, I used to be cynical and say it would never change even though it obviously should change. I um, a, a, An election, this, this cycle, an election in which we don't have an outcome until Thanksgiving or Christmas or later, yeah. and where the reason that Trump is able to sh- make so much mischief is that there is a plausible scenario because the states are close where Trump can at least point to a series of battleground states that if they fell his way, he could get to 270, is gonna, I think, highlight for a lot of people the notion of what the fuck this get to 270 thing mean? Like, why do we care? Like, you know, let's let's go to the notion of let's have a democracy here where if you win the popular vote by five million, you get to be president. I think that movement is is ripe. And I think it could be that this I, I would like to see the Electoral College go away. And I think that this election could be. Uh, given what we're anticipating here, one that could create a lot of momentum or a much greater momentum for that change than we've seen in the past.
0: There's I, sort of a had, perfect storm I think in that the future yet.
2: we're going to see an elimination of the three C's, electoral college, conventions, and caucuses.
3: Wait, mm. yes, okay, an electoral caucuses. college begins with an
0: E.
2: Yeah, it's a college
4: though.
3: There's Come a on. college a in there. I'll give college, it to him col- on a
0: technicality. I'm electoral. That, I, give it, I give it to you on a technicality and I like that.
4: This is Inside the Hive.
0: You guys were were or have been so in the thick of things with the caucuses, uh, which I think is like the craziest system that still exists in America today. It's just it's a wild thing to still yeah. exist in America. I think we're in a perfect storm of a moment, right, where I think people are rethinking the way that they have lived, the norms that they've abided by for so long. Plus, you're going to have this this very consequential mischief that's going to happen in November. And I think that that is a time when we can change, but a lot of that is dependent on what's happening down ballot too. It's not, we don't just have one election in November. We have a lot of different elections and Alex, I'm hey, wondering, can, can, I, you, can I,
4: can I suggest one C one, one important C that I would like to come I'm nervous back.
0: for this. I'm nervous. Can, I,
4: can we have, can Balloon? we have co- cocktails? I oh. missed cocktails, right? I mean, oh, like, yeah. What are you missing during COVID, like more mm. than anything? Face-to-face oh. cocktails with your friends, man. We got to get the cocktails I miss pack. a loud
0: bar. I don't even miss the cocktail part of it. I miss I miss being in a place with noise. Yeah, That's the thing that I'm really craving. Come to my house, Emily. Oh. <laughs> I, I saw that coming a mile away. I'll be right there. I walked right into it. Yeah. Your own ballot in your house, I, I get how you're voting. But I want to know what you think about what we're going to see with – the Senate elections with the House elections, you guys are, are thinking about this and talking to people in a way that most people don't have this kind of access. So what are you hearing? What are you thinking? What's the temperature in different states as we head closer to November? Uh, I'll jump
2: in just because I think that this, uh, you know, given all the mischief that's p- possible, uh, it, it could be, of course, a very mixed bag. But but it also, as John was saying, it could be a true, not just wave, but a tsunami if things keep going the way they are right now, and it, the interesting parallel is 1980. This feels a lot like 1980, where yep. uh, where where Trump is Carter and uh, and and Biden is Reagan, right? Mm. And and if you have those kind of numbers, I'll just give you a good example. I'm in Colorado, which is a generally very purple state, and we have an incumbent Republican senator here, Cory Gardner. Who's a very popular guy? He's he's you know generally I mean his his uh, he's kind of a Reagan esque sunny optimistic guy that most people like. He's just a likable guy, but he's been he's been tarnished by Trump and uh, and we have a a well known governor former governor John Hickenlooper who barely got through his primary because he had a disastrous candidacy due to some ethical violations and some kind of you know, real mishandling of all of that, uh, that left him very, very scarred and very, uh, very battered coming out of that primary. And yet it looks like he's probably still going to win easily. I I'd say, you know, maybe, maybe double digits, uh, which just testifies to, you know, how strong these Democrats are in Senate races around the country. So, uh, that's just exhibit a for me that Hickenlooper, Having had a very very bad primary, is still in very strong shape going into the fall.
3: Mm. Emily, as 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 you know, as a sort of narrative emerges that Biden is in a strong position come November. Obviously, this is all subject to change. There's been more scrutiny on what that the implications are for the Senate in places like Mark said in Colorado and Iowa and Maine, Montana, North Carolina, Arizona, um, and we'll be you know we'll be looking at a lot of those. Races in our course of, of the run this this fall, but you know I think there's another c word that may you know go the way of the dinosaur as the as a result of a Senate takeover on the part of the Dems, and that's the filibuster, which in my language <laughs> begins with c. But I mean, there is now there is now serious talk. You know, you, you talk to Democratic strategists, and they say, look if if we get if we get the majority in the Senate. It might be time to say goodbye to the filibuster because there is, you know, the knives are out to do um, some real legislative work, and also they understand the impossibility of getting anything really substantive passed mm. without, you know, with what with the filibuster still intact. And that would be a just a, a like dramatic reshaping of um, the legislative branch, just as it as it functions right now, which is sort of barely functioning.
0: It feels so exciting to me and And I'm nervous to even put it out into the universe. But it feels exciting to me to have a moment where we think in in a matter of months from now, we could live in a world where actual things happen in our government, where <laughs> there is movement towards change and not just towards the dark, scary portions of of the world and consciousness that we've lived through over the last four years. What something that you said earlier, Alex, I just I, I can't get out of my brain, and that's thinking about Joe Biden being at the top of a party that really is in the midst of a, of an identity shift and a movement towards a real progressive place with younger voices, different voices, diversity. And I wonder how Joe Biden is going to be as a leader of that kind of change if he does win this election. Heilman, you've spent so much time uh, with with. The Joe campaign Biden, yeah. and, and Joe Biden and, and that administration. And so I'm curious what you think he's going to be like as a leader of that kind of party where, where it's not just people like him anymore. And it's not just voices in the center of the aisle anymore. It's, it's real, real progressive people who want actual progress. And I don't know what he's going to be like as that kind of leader.
4: I think it's been totally interesting to, you know, I, I, I met the guy uh, when I was a college senior. Um, in 1987. Um, and little known fact is that I, I wrote about him at the Daily Northwestern. The first time I really ever met him, and and was going to go work for him on the '88 campaign. Um, when the, then that campaign didn't happen. Um, for reasons that had to do with some of the the problems that have afflicted Joe Biden throughout his career. Uh, in that case, uh, you know his 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 claims about fabrication and plagiarism and other things kind of took him down in, in 1988. And I've been kind of following him forever since then. And obviously he is not a, is not a progressive in any meaningful way. He's not a, not a liberal. Um, he was even at the, you know, the time when he was a dominant figure in some ways in the Senate, you know, was always seen uh, not exactly as a DLC Democrat, but much more of a, of a, the, the a Democrat who related to to working class to the working class white part of the of the, of the old New Deal coalition. And so he is you know and, and some of the things that made it hard for him to be the Democratic nominee, even though in the end of course, you know it was the big swing of African American uh, voters along with the broad party establishment that helped him get the nomination kind of in a heartbeat uh, going to go from dead to nominee in the span of about 10 days. one of the more kind of remarkable things that's happened in the history of democratic politics really he's you know those, those issues, his discomfort with, Woke progressivism, his history on issues related to crime and 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 police reform issues. The guy who put one hundred thousand cops on the street. The guy who was as more responsible, probably than any other single person, for the mass incarceration state. Uh, a guy who you know has the Anita Hill history. Um, you know was obviously plagued by some accusations around being you know, too uh, familiar, too physically proximate to women that were the way he kicked off his campaign this time around. So it's a really good question, Emily. And I think one of the things that's most fascinating about Biden this period right now is something that I don't think any of us have ever seen before, which is um, a nominee who, having secured the nomination of their party, moved to the extreme. And I don't mean to use the word extreme, but moved to the further, a Democrat who, got the nomination and then moved to the left is not what normally happens. You normally run, because of the nature of a a nominating electorate, you run in a more progressive way if you're a Democrat and then you tack back to the center. Or if you're a Republican, you run in a more conservative way than you really are and you tack back to the center. This goes back to one of the things I was saying at the beginning about the absence of a swing vote in America anymore. That's part of the reason why, because there is no swing anymore in the middle you don't necessarily have to tack back to the middle, but I also think it's very much a, a, an acknowledgement on Biden's part that where the en- energy is in the Democratic Party and where the future of the Democratic Party is, is with progressives. And so, you know, you've seen him embrace uh, the economic agenda that an economic agenda is much closer to Elizabeth Warren's than what his original economic agenda was. You've seen him, you know, do explicitly a various on, on various policy issues, do a pact with Bernie Sanders, and, and I think it's an awkward and uncomfortable shift for him at the kind of character level. But I do think that he's not he's made it. It's awkward and and not necessarily the natural thing, but he's made it with surprising speed and without a lot of of obvious. Uh, there's not been a lot, a lot of this friction out of Biden world in this period. He's kind of done this thing that no one normally does um, and done it kind of seamlessly. And I think, you know, given the scale of the problems that confront the country, uh, that are going to confront the country, whoever our next president is, and it, let's assume it's going to be Joe Biden, let's, for the sake of this argument, I think he is going to be so consumed with dealing with COVID and dealing with digging out of the economic, uh, depth, the economic straits that we're in right now, the ditch we're in, that it's going to give an opportunity to have more of a kind of government by cabinet, a government where a lot of the, the important appointments starting with vice president, but on other levels, whether it's national security advisor, whether it's on economics, whether it's at the cabinet departments, Biden is going to be delegating a lot of that. And I think that it's the way in which the, the progressive, uh, base of the party the progressive energy of the party will kind of transform the Biden administration will end up being more progressive than Joe Biden is in some ways because he gets where it's going and the nature of the kind of government i imagine him forming in the context in which he's forming it will be a place where a lot of that energy can go live on in various have, have a lot of avenues for it to get For it to get implemented, whether that's on the foreign policy side or domestic policy side, you can imagine how that could happen in a way that's a lot easier than it would be if you just focus on like who Joe Biden is and what his history was. You can be like, okay, I can see how that would happen and how the party, he could end up being a transformational figure in a kind of unlikely, but not that kind of hiccupy way, right?
3: Well, I would also I would also say one thing. I mean, like, you know, we've been debating a public option forever. We've been talking about universal basic income. Well, now there's a pandemic and the question of who has access to health care, what kind of health care is it? You know, that that has lit a fire and made possible a sort of progressive progressive vision of what uh, the country should look like is made it much more a reality for someone like Joe Biden stepping into office in January of 2021 these things that were sort of theoretical ideas at the far left of the progressive field now because of COVID and the way it has touched every sector of American society could very well be the solutions that he pursues without Mm. much um, in the way of debate, at least inside the democratic party.
0: It's fascinating and, and so true to, to both of those points. And I think that it's undeniably vital to have a different uh, outlook and, and way that we are getting health care in this country.
4: This is Inside the Hive.
0: Heilman, you said something that's interesting to me, and I'm curious what you guys all think of this. Um, if there is a sort of governing with a more reliance on the cabinet, I keep thinking of what happened in 2016 where Trump did not plan for a transition. He did not plan for a cabinet. There was there was some planning by Chris Christie, but all the binders that he had worked with his team to create were subsequently thrown out uh, after the election. And and I think a lot of the ills that we suffer, not not all of them, but some of the ills that we suffer now are because there was absolutely no foresight into what a Trump administration would actually look like and no planning and no real transition. Are you guys getting a sense that there is that sort of planning in the works in the Biden campaign?
4: Oh, there definitively is. Yeah, there's the, their transition planning is. Pretty uh, is pretty far along, and they've been doing a, a lot of it in this COVID period. Um, not in a totally formal way; I, they haven't like kind of put together all those, they haven't kind of named transition heads and done all this stuff that they'll eventually do. But um, I think this, well, among the many things that have been happening in the, not in the basement literally, but in this period where there's been, you know, like the Biden people have been doing a lot more debate prep, for instance, than people realize. They've been doing a lot of things under the cover of COVID that. Uh, would have gotten a lot more attention from the press if they were having to do that out in the open. Um, They also have a
3: lot more time because they're not doing campaign. (laughs) Totally.
2: Not not just time, but this is this is a guy who's been vice president before. I mean, this is a guy who's been thinking about these sort of things, you know, not just for six months, but for years and years. So, uh, you know, I think his planning in his head has has been going on for a long, long time. And this may be in terms of kind of cabinet preparation, that sort of thing, the most planned out in history.
0: Mm. What do we think is going to happen with the debates?
2: (laughs) Well, (laughs) I would say that one big strategic problem that uh, Trump has laid out for himself is that he's lowered the bar for Joe Biden. Mm. And the most important thing for debates is expectations. It's not a forensic debate. You don't get scored on points. You get scored on how people expect you to do. And if and if because Trump has helped Biden walk into that debate and uh, by saying that this guy is, you know erratic, he's eccentric, he can't put together, uh, you know, a complete paragraphs. And if he walks out and, you know, does put together a sentence or two, he's going to win the debate.
0: I, I think, think what, that, you're,
4: what you're saying, yeah. Mark, is that if he doesn't piss himself on stage, he's going to win the debate. <laughs> yeah,
0: he exactly basically just needs right. to be awake do, and, and forming a sentence for him to exceed the expectations.
3: I do want to say one thing about the debate, though, Emily, and of course, we're going to watch them and, you know, everybody's going to have so many hot takes and yada, yada, yada the thing that's going to decide this election isn't a debate performance. It's going to be COVID. I mean, it just by, but by the, the all encompassing nature of it and it's touching, you know, suburban soccer moms now have to decide whether or not sending their 16 year olds to high school is a death sentence. I mean, that is just unlike anything the American electorate has dealt with two months, three months before an election. Right. So, I mean, to some degree, it will be interesting political spectacle, but I would place my money on, it, I, I don't think it's going to be a thing that, that will move the needle the way perhaps some of those debates did in 2016.
2: Well, mm-hmm. let, let me kind of argue the other side of that, Alex. I, I, a, I agree with you that this is entirely a referendum on COVID. But if Joe Biden gets up on that stage and, and it melts down and shows that he's incapable of, of uh, putting together three sentences, and that he's not coherent, <laughs> oh, yeah. then people are going to say if this guy can't handle incoherent. COVID. You
3: know? If he's completely incoherent, then do Or it incontinent. <laughs> if he is a vegetable at the debate stage, <laughs> at the debate stage, then if he's, he's incontinent, that's
0: really a problem. I think to, bigger <laughs> problems if that's the I case. I
4: think to, to to MCAT's point, I think like look, there's no doubt that you know you have if you think about the way that these elections, like the frames for these elections, right? You've got a you know, an incumbent president is the general kind of resting state for that is it's it's a, a referendum on the on the sitting president. And a sitting president who's unpopular, as Mark knows, because he worked for one in 2003, 2004, their job is to try to make the race not about them, make it not a referendum, but make it a choice and try to say, this is really a choice between us. It's not an up or down vote on my, three, my four years in office. How are you better off now than you were four years ago? But it's a choice between us two and then to try to disqualify your opponent, right? So, you know, the Trump campaign has had a hard time finding a, a frame to fit Biden that would that would set up uh, a way to make it about him, partly because of what Alex said, which is that COVID is so big that it's very hard to shift the frame into a choice model rather than a referendum model. But they're, you know, they're working on that and they've now sort of seem to have finally settled on the frame, which is not the original idea, which was, you know, Joe Biden's senile, but Joe Biden is a puppet and a tool of the left, which the senile thing kind of folds into a little bit. He doesn't, really, he doesn't really have it together. He's weak, he's senile, he's feeble. Therefore, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders are going to end up running the country and AOC, et cetera, et cetera. And I do think that, you know, the pressure in that first debate in particular to go to your Marx comment about Carter and and Reagan was only one debate in 1980. It was, it turned out to be decisive, in some sense because people had a lot of questions about Reagan and whether or not he was competent or de- smart enough to be president he came out gave a good performance and that sort of sealed what turned out to be a landslide i think in biden's case the similar kind of thing is going that first 20 minutes of that first debate if there are more than one um, i think there's no doubt there's going to be I, there's no doubt there's going to be one and i think there probably will be all three is going to be a very high is going to be a very high stakes endeavor and the last thing i'll say about it is that you know the biden people are confident about it for two reasons one goes to Mark's point about the fact that Trump has done them a favor by lowering expectations. But number two, Biden wasn't like not good in debates that were multi-candidate debates where he had to be on stage with a lot of people, a lot going on. Um, uh, we're not very comfortable debating women, not very comfortable debating people of color. Where Biden was really good, the best debate performance he gave was the one-on-one debate against Bernie Sanders another septuagenarian, and people were like, well, Biden's going to get his clock cleaned by Sanders, and Biden came out, did fine. And by doing fine, essentially sealed the nomination. It was the last thing he had to kind of get done was to stand up there with Sanders and hold his own. I think that they feel like, in the Biden campaign, they feel like a similar dynamic could play out here where... You know, the, the Trump has done them this favor by, by pushing down expectations and then he's going to get out there and he, you know, debating Donald Trump is weird and hard and there's never, you've never done anything like it. He's never done anything like it, but it's still two septuagenarian white guys on stage together. And Joe Biden's pretty comfortable in that general frame, you know? And I think they're kind of like, if he can go out there and be competent for a half an hour, everybody's going to say, okay, that box is ticked, let's go. And they'll be in a good place.
3: Emily, person, man, woman, TV, camera. That's all you That's need to know. I have to say, I way. have
0: a hard time remembering those words
3: I in succession, wrong, and I'm starting to worry about I think myself. Said it
0: wrong. I think I, I I'm, I'm, I'm really fail. impressed. <laughs> I have a tricky time. You guys talk about, about high stakes endeavors, about spectacles, and I could talk to you guys all day. I miss you guys, and I... I have so much to to hear from you guys, but I know you guys have planes to catch and pandemics <laughs> to chase. So I'm going to ask you one question about these high stakes endeavors and the spectacle. What are you most looking forward to going back into this season? What can we expect from you guys? Who are you chasing to interview? Give us some, something to look forward to. I'm desperate for something.
2: Cocktails. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> are you guys going to go to restaurants? That's such a big part of your show. Uh,
3: oh, girl, that's, that's going to be great a great question. She- be a great question that we'll we'll see the answer to that
0: we're, we're <laughs> we're gonna, we're gonna
2: who, has, who has the best takeout cocktails
0: I'll take it I'll take it we're at the we're at the bottom of the barrel right now I take takeout cocktail sounds great to me right now
4: I think to your point I think you know the thing I am I think we all feel at least some of this and my my colleagues here will shoot me down if I'm saying something they disagree with but I think we're all really looking forward to just getting out. It's not really like one particular interview it's like I'm really looking forward to going to Montana you know I'm really looking forward to going to Maine I'm really like you know whether it's the, we'll see how much action these presidential candidates do how often Biden goes out to campaign how often Trump goes out how much of it's digital versus how much of it's real I, I the one thing that I think that we are seeing already is that the senate campaigns the gubernatorial campaigns the house campaigns are are a little bit more on the ground affairs and in some places a lot more. And obviously everything's COVID dependent. We're not going to do anything crazy, but I do think that the reality is that whether it's uh, whether it's in Mark's home state uh, or uh, in one of the other, you know, nine or 10 places where there are going to be big races going on, there's going to be a little bit more freedom of movement than any of us have had over the course of this quarantine. And I'm psyched about that. Like getting out to your point, Emily, that you started out with, you know, we all have been, you know, except for Mark, we've, you know, Alex and I have been in New York, you're out in LA, we've been in, in the, the bubble, the, the, by the coastal bubble. And I'm super psyched to just be able to be out in the world. And I, I never thought I'd say this, but I'm like psyched to get on a plane again, you know, like go somewhere, go somewhere, see something, talk to some people like, you know, not be, you know, completely locked down. That's going to be very liberating and super exciting.
3: I would just add one, add one thing, which is, you know, I think as um, human beings, it's hard to understand uh, the shifting tides of history around you. But I think everybody really does have a keen awareness that we're living through history right now. I mean, I, we I think we have generally for the last four years, but certainly in the middle of a global once in a century pandemic, we're having probably the most consequential election of our lifetimes is all, you know, that's a, that's a fucking lot to chronicle as, a, as an American journalist. And it is such a thrill to be able to do it from the front row, which is, you know, what the show's all about. So, um, being there in the middle of it all is absolutely something that is going to keep us, um, o- awake and, and, uh, breathing through masks. Oh, another <laughs> thing
4: also, MCAT's got a new hat.
3: A beautiful yeah, one I, Yeah, I'm really looking
2: forward to wearing my new hat. That's always Yeah, you know, I'm looking forward to new hat. I mean, America is. America is looking
3: forward <laughs> to you wearing your new hat.
0: I don't want you to spoil yeah. anything about it, but I will just say that I'm very excited. And and if we are going through these shifting tides, and we certainly are, there are no three captains that I would rather entrust. <laughs> oh, girl. To guide us through. You're an honorary
3: yeah, captain. You're an honorary master.
2: Exactly. You, and we're hoping you get out there with us.
0: Oh, we God want to willing, see you I need to get out of this house. <laughs> I need to get out of this house. I'm in Los Angeles of me, and I'm so grateful for you guys sharing your wisdom and your time with all of us. We're better off for it. So thank you. Thanks, Kick everybody. it, sister.
4: Thanks. Thanks.
0: Thank you to my guests, the co-hosts of The Circus and, of course, my co host Joe Hagan. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, radio.com, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. Thanks to Cadence 13 for their production work. And of course, thanks to my sponsors. Please support them the way you support this podcast. We'll see you next week.